0: So we come to the account in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is going to display for us in a very clear way the providence of God. Uh, Jesus does lots of miracles. I think we shouldn't sell short the providence of God. Uh, So we're going to look here and just kind of kind of watch this account, just kind of see it unfold. So in Luke chapter 7 verse 11, it came about soon afterwards. Well, soon after what? Uh, He just got done healing the slaves of the centurion. So a little bit after that, day two, somewhere in there. Jesus, you will recall, is centered in Capernaum. That's that's his, uh, kind of his base. That's where he starts from and then moves out from there, and so he now leaves Capernaum, and he goes to this city called Nain, and his disciples go along with him, accompanied by a large crowd, which is kind of interesting, because Nain is almost a full day's journey from Capernaum. That's quite a journey, that, that's quite a walk. And Jesus leaves Capernaum, and when he goes, he doesn't just take, say, the 12 who would have a special relationship with him. But the fact is, he's taking lots of people. They're all kind of like, ooh, what is Jesus going to do next? Let's follow Jesus and see what he's, how, how." he's clearly doing miraculous things. I wonder what he might do um, for the next miracle. There's no indication when Jesus leaves that he says to anybody Uh, why he's going. He doesn't seem to give any details. He doesn't say, oh, you guys want to see a miracle? Watch this. He just apparently says, I'm going to Nain. I mean, that's, and so off he goes. And the crowd, a large crowd, along with the disciples, all go with him. Much like when Jesus said, I must go through Samaria, so he must go to Nain. A full day's journey. It's a small town, um, but it's in Israel. And one of the things that you notice if you ever make it to Israel is that the entire nation is a small nation. And so it's really difficult to find some place that something hasn't occurred at before. I mean, they've got a couple of thousand years of history. So if you go to a particular city, you may very well discover that not far away or actually in that city that things have happened. This would be no exception. On the other side of the hill, on which Nain is located, there's a village called Shunem. Well, Shunem is the place where Elisha, remember Elisha, brought the woman's son back from the dead. Remember that? He, uh, I won't go into the whole account, but the woman, he stays with her. And she ends up getting pregnant, having the, the child. And then while Elisha is gone, the child dies. And so she goes and finds Elisha. and It's like, what, what, do you, what have you done to me? You gave me this son just to make my life miserable. And Elisha's like, hmm, I, you know, we're, we're going to have to fix this. And so he sends his servant, Gehazi, on ahead with his staff. And he lays the staff over the boy. Elisha gets there and actually lays on the child twice to finally bring him back from the dead, literally. Uh, Not far away from Nain uh, is a village called Endor. And you, if you think about it for a moment, you might actually be able to think about what happened at Endor. That's where Saul visited the medium. Remember, he wanted to find out what was going on because Samuel wasn't talking to him. So he goes to the witch of Endor or the medium of Endor and uh, tries to get her to call up Samuel, which she succeeds in doing, by the way. She's just more frightened than anyone else because she's a fraud. And this time the guy actually shows up, so she's astounded at that. So he goes, takes a whole day to get there. Um, Who knows the exact route he takes, but he shows up. And now verse 12. As he approaches the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her because it's a small town, chances are the gate is more decorative. It's probably a a city gate in which uh, the custom of the day was to bring about the uh, civics of the city. If you had a, a... suit that you brought against someone or if you wanted to have your case heard or whatever the whatever the government was of the city the local city government that would occur at the city gates generally a major through fair went through whatever city it was even small ones and apparently they set up this gate so that you could go in and out it it's probably not military in nature The, the town's not big enough to have like a big wall it's just got this gate so jesus shows up and the burial custom, by the way, in Israel, someone would die and the Jews didn't really practice embalming. So once you died, they kind of got you out of there. Um, usually within the day, If you, particularly if you died earlier in the day, they would absolutely um, wrap you in, in the, the bed sheet kind of a deal. They would put the spices in there they would put you on a stretcher or a briar, and they would have the funeral, and then they would take you out of the town and bring you over. Uh, generally, if you're wondering, like with Jesus, why they, why they put him in a tomb with the stone rolled over, um, not to be too whatever, but Uh, burial space was kind of at a premium so they would wrap you up and pour the spices all over you and then leave you there and come back in about a year and then they would roll the stone away and you would be uh, bones would be you're nothing but a literally a pile of bones and then they would take an ossuary which is a a Kind of box-looking thing, generally made out of clay or something like that, and it was as long as a femur, which is the longest bone in your body. And so they'd set your bones in this thing, and you know, and, and the ossuary was pretty easy to bury or to put in like a you know a mausoleum that would have the the slots that you would slide it in there. Uh, so that was the standard thing. You you didn't embalm, so you didn't wait around a long time. You You pretty much got people in a tomb as soon as you could. Um, So here's this gentleman. And if you're thinking, well, maybe he's not really dead. Maybe he just passed out. Uh, Again, not to be too um, whatever, but, uh, you know, it doesn't require a a doctor uh, to determine if someone is dead, particularly if they've been dead for an hour or two. After an hour or two, your body is, you know, you're ashen gray. You've kind of almost deflated. You, uh, you immediately, after death, don't look real good. And give it a couple hours, and you really don't look good. Give it 12 hours, and, yeah, it doesn't take too long, and we, we really want to start putting you somewhere. So these are people who, they they could tell. The young man has clearly died. He's not sleeping. He's not just passed out. He's gray and ashen. His eyes are glazed over. He's not breathing. He's, he's gone. Uh, so he's the only son of his mother. How, do we, how would Jesus know that walking up? Other than his omniscience, of course. Uh, probably the family would dress in mourning clothes Uh, Not that everyone in town wasn't mourning, but there was the the family clothing. Well, the only person in that clothing is this woman. So there's no husband, because he's not there. There's no other children dressed in mourning clothing. So this is her only son. This is it. This woman is now about to be completely, as it were, abandoned. She at least was clearly married. Her husband is probably died. I mean, he's not around anyway. And it was her son who was going to be able to sustain her. And this was the love of her life and the apple of her eye. And, you know, anybody who's got kids, you all know exactly how, as a parent, you feel towards your children. And now he's died. She doesn't have a husband. And now she doesn't even have a son who's going to be able to take care of her. In first century Israel, this is a really difficult place for this woman to be. She's now just at the winds and tides of of the life it's going to go badly for her most likely everyone should feel bad for this lady she's in a tough spot no husband no children and she's on the way to the cemetery to bury her only child that is that is a tragedy and it it wouldn't be you could completely understand if she were to say well where is God I mean I'm trying to live a good life here and where's God I'm I'm an Israelite I you can imagine that while her son is ill she's been praying that God would heal him and God has not answered that prayer and so she's she's now on her way to the cemetery and here we see amazing right Jesus who has left Capernaum and it may very well be that the that the son was alive when he left. We don't know exactly, but he's recently died, probably that day. And here Jesus comes, not just meeting the not just like waiting at the cemetery for her to finally show up, or making his way to her house to go in and talk to her. No, he meets her at the gate while they're leading her son out. They've got him on a, you know, on, on the briar, they've got him on a wooden plank. Uh, he's wrapped in the death cloth. Um, everyone in town, a large group has gone out with her. Everyone just feels terrible for this poor lady. You can imagine anyone with, a, with a, any kind of heart at all is going to have just tremendous compassion on this woman. And yet, here Jesus is at the exact moment they're bringing him out. This is because God has planned this. God plans All kinds of stuff. God does all kinds of things behind the scenes that we don't really see. God says to Isaiah in Isaiah 49, I am God, there's no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. Things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is going to do exactly what he wants to do and from ancient times, has laid out the plan already. Uh, Isaiah 55, my word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me void or empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God in his providence has the ability to accomplish God's will. He can do whatever he'd like. We, sometimes like the disciples, I think we can become kind of hardened to the miraculous. So Jesus is going to, on various occasions, he's going to, say, make a lame person walk. Well, I mean, it's miraculous. It's particularly to the person who's lame. They're going to be very happy that Jesus showed up and made the lame walk. But it's a, it's a singular event. It's kind of between Jesus and the person who's, who's lame or between Jesus and the person who's blind or, you know, pick your miracle. One Jesus, one person. He heals them. We don't know exactly how that works, but, you know, it's kind of a, it's miraculous, and uh, there's no doubt the person who's blind is very happy to be seeing, but you could imagine that Jesus just kind of arrives and goes through the cities one after another after another, and they bring out anybody who's sick, and he heals them all. This is a unique situation in that Jesus makes a full day's journey specifically to get to the town of Nan and to meet this widowed woman walking out of town right at the city gate. He meets her. The number of variables that go into this particular set of events is it's incomprehensible. I mean, we, we can't even start tallying them up. What are the odds that Jesus is going to, on the day of this woman's death, just get up and go, yeah, i got to go to Nan. And off he goes, and everybody goes with him, and he gets there at the exact moment that she's coming out. It's a, it's a really amazing thing. And it shows that God is in charge. God, you may think that God is not paying attention to your situation, that God is, who knows where God is, he, but he doesn't seem to be paying attention to your situation, particularly if it seems difficult don't think that for a moment Jesus God knows exactly what's going on a hair of your head isn't going to fall out without God knowing about it Uh, the birds of the air God feeds them God is completely and totally aware of what's going on in every single one of our lives and God has the ability from eternity past to bring about his will It's one of the reasons, by the way, we should pray fervently that God will do his will. uh, Because God has the ability to completely transform our lives in a moment. Uh, As any number of people, um, for good and bad, can be completely aware. Uh, Sometimes you get the job. Sometimes you get whatever it is you were pursuing. Sometimes you don't make it through the green light with someone running the red light. And that can be life-changing, too. Uh, God knows all of that. God is completely aware of all of that. And the providence of God is such that when you look at your life and you look what's going on, don't think, oh, God, God doesn't even know. God isn't watching. God isn't paying attention. Oh, oh, yes. Yes, he is. And when the Lord saw her, verse 13, he felt compassion for her and said to her, don't weep. Do not weep. Now, we tend, um, yeah, you can look at Jesus and think, well, he's God. I mean, does he really have great emotion? Does Jesus have, is, is he actually an emotional being? If you study philosophy and you study, say, Aristotle and his view of God, um, God is this, this white, pure essence that is, that is so wholly other than all of us that God is impassable. He doesn't feel anything. Um, That's not the God of the Bible. That might be the God of philosophy. That's not the God of the Bible. Jesus, when is the one time Jesus wept? At the tomb of Lazarus. And he knew exactly what he was going to do for Lazarus too, right? He was going to raise Lazarus. But Jesus wept. Why? Jesus has compassion on us. Jesus knows what's going on in our lives. And and he's looking at this woman like, please don't weep. It's like he can't take it. Jesus sees this woman in the anguish of her heart and sees the, the difficulties and the hardships that she's so concerned about and so worried about as her only son is literally being taken to the gravesite to be put in the ground. Um, don't weep. Don't, don't weep. You don't need to weep. In fact, if you keep weeping, I mean, he doesn't say it, but you can hear that Jesus is like, if you keep weeping, I'm going to end up weeping. I'm going to be weeping when I get to the tomb of Lazarus. So please don't weep. Jesus hurts. Jesus feels for this lady. Jesus is looking at her like, really, we are about to make the situation completely different. You are going to walk away from here with a whole other spirit than you walked in here with. So, we should weep for the lost. We should have compassion. There's, there's no indication, by the way, that this woman is actually a believer. I mean, she might be, but it doesn't actually say it. Um, Jesus just has compassion on her. When we think about the world, when we think about the people that we know, people we don't know, I mean, if you go through Walmart, if you're driving down the road, look at the people in the cars. And ask yourself, where are they going to be in 100 years? Because we know statistically the odds are pretty good that that they're not going to be in the bliss of God's presence. They're going to be somewhere else. And we should weep for them. We should be broken hearted for them. Um, And we should strive to, to beg God to give us the wisdom to know how to share the gospel in a way that they'll at least hear it. We should have compassion for the lost. Jesus does. He cares for this woman. So he comes up and he touches the coffin or the briar. And the bearers come to a halt. Which, by the way, is just amazing, right? I mean, if you're on your way to the... You can go to a funeral now. If you're part of the funeral procession and we're on our way from, say, the funeral home and we're headed to the cemetery, well, everybody turns on their flashers and... If you come to a red light, everybody just goes through the, don't stop. Whatever you do, don't stop. That's today. So back then, you can imagine we're, look, we, this is painful enough. We are already, everybody in the place is just we feel terrible. Let's just get this done. Don't stop us. We're on our way to the cemetery. Please just let us go. And yet Jesus walks up and actually puts his hand on it, and they stop. Showing the the power and presence of Jesus. And then he says, while everyone's there, right? The whole town is there. The woman is there. Everybody's there. Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the moment? Because he sits up and starts speaking. And Jesus gives him back to his mom he is not just going to tell the woman, oh, please stop crying. Everything will be okay. He doesn't just say that. He actually does it. He tells her to not weep, and he is going to actually transform the situation. Don't weep because I'm about to fix this. And if you want to see amazing things, just watch this. Young man, I say to you, arise. This, by the way, is very similar to how Elijah... Uh, raised the widow's son. It's also like uh, Elijah. He also raised someone. But in both those instances, they had to lay over the child and, and it was a process, not Jesus. Jesus just says, young man, I say to you, arise. And he just sits up. He's Now he's talking to his mother. I mean, there's no process here. Other people have been raised from the dead in the Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha both did it. But this is, this is just instantaneous. This is just Jesus saying the words, and there's no sneezing, and there's no, which occurs in one of those instances. This kid just sits up. He's alive. And Jesus gives him back to his mom. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being there and watching this happen? It's interesting. No one is exercising any faith no one expects this to happen no one no one what is this guy gonna do okay we'll stand it for just a second but i mean really what's he gonna do it's not like the woman has this great faith she hasn't even talked to him at all he talks to her she doesn't say anything to him the people carrying the child they don't, I don't, I don't no one expects jesus to do this so this is not a matter of well, wow, i'm glad they had all that great faith nobody has any faith nobody even expects this to happen and yet it does Because Jesus has the power. Now, the crowd does react. First of all, fear grips them all. When you see the actual power of God, it's scary. It's it's terrifying. Why? Because you are in the presence of power that is incomprehensible. Someone who can actually just raise the dead with a word, that is a person you want to be... uh, you want to have great respect for that person. They have power that no one has. And so great fear comes upon them. And then they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Which is good, right? I mean, that's good. But there's not really repentance. This is, this is a move in the right direction. Jesus is one of the great prophets. That puts him up there with Elijah and Elisha. But don't really repent. They they don't really respond other than how they responded to Elijah. You remember the story of Elijah, right? So Elijah goes up to King Ahab and says, because you're basically so wicked and you have driven the nation of Israel. Now this is after the kingdom is divided, so not Judah, but you've driven the nation of Israel so far away from God that it's not going to rain until I say so. And then he walks away. And sure enough, it doesn't rain for three years. Well, after the three years, Elijah shows back up in Israel and he talks to uh, one of Ahab's servants and says, "Uh, go get your master and tell him, I want to talk to him. That's its own interesting thing there. You'll want to look at that. But anyway, he says, how do I know you won't just disappear again? You've disappeared for three years now. I mean, the king has sent everybody in every direction to come find you. If I go get him and we come back here and you're not here, he'll kill me for sure. Elijah's like, don't worry. I'll be here. I want to talk to the guy. So he does. He talks to Ahab and he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. You want to worship Baal? Fine. Let's go to Mount Carmel. You gather all the prophets of Baal and... I'm the only prophet of God left, so I'll come and represent the true God. They can represent Baal, and we should get the nation together to come see how this goes. Well, how it goes, it, you all know the story, right? But how it goes is they sacrifice their ox first, and they start out early in the morning, and then they call on their God, and come noontime, he starts mocking them, and like, hey, where's your God anyway? Is he, what, is he asleep? Did he go on a journey? I mean, where'd he go? Well, he doesn't seem to be doing much here with your sacrifice. And so they're leaping and cutting themselves. And uh, they're, just, they're just going crazy. And as time for the evening sacrifice, Elijah calls over the people. Now, he's already said to them, to the people, before this thing got going, if God is God, worship him. And if Baal is God, worship him. And the people answer him, not a word. They're, we're not responding to that. But then he takes the evening sacrifice, he builds an altar with the 12 stones, and he sacrifices the ox and puts him on there, and then he pours a barrel of water and another barrel of water. He digs a trench around the the sacrifice, and then he pours a third thing of water, barrel of water. Then, okay, everybody, step back. We are going to see the power of God, and, of course, the fire falls and completely consumes the altar, the water, the ox, I mean, the the whole thing, just poof, gone. Again, the people are terrified. They've seen the power of God. He says grab all the prophets of Baal kill them. Don't let anybody escape. And of course the people do that. Now, again, you would think this is going to really cause nationwide repentance. Eh, not so much. In fact, what happens is they, the rain comes um, Elijah ends up back in Jerusalem and Uh, Sorry, back in Samaria. And Jezebel says, after she hears what happens, may God do the same thing to Elijah that he has done to my prophets um, by this time tomorrow. So what he does, he runs for his life. And we're, we're probably tempted to go, you know what? You just had this big deal up on Mount Carmel. What are you doing running for your life? Well, what he's doing is, I thought it would work. I mean, I thought that this event would be the event that would really bring everybody back into serving God. I look, the fire fell. We killed the prophets of Baal. Uh, When Jezebel stood up and said that, everyone's going to side with me and we're going to go take out Jezebel, right? Uh, Yeah, not so much. Everyone just kind of stands back and go, oh, well, you know, you're the guy that called down fire from heaven. Uh, Don't look at us. We're not, we're not, we don't really trust God here. Uh, You're the one that trusts God. And so even though, and of course, this event in Nain, this event occurred like just on the other side of the hill from where Elisha raised somebody from the dead, and here Jesus raises somebody from the dead, and they say, oh, you're one of the great prophets. Well, that's good. Exactly what did you guys all do with one of the great prophets? Oh, that's right. You didn't believe them either. You didn't repent of the preaching of Elijah. You didn't repent of the preaching of Elisha. And guess what? You're not going to repent of the preaching of Jesus either. Sure, he's one of the great prophets, but when did you guys actually pay any attention to the great prophets? So it's really kind of interesting, right? Now, the other thing that happens, because the story of Elijah is not done yet, Elijah runs for his life. Well, then what happens? You've got to get this, or you kind of miss the story. Elijah runs for his life because... Well, I don't know, we just saw the great power of God, right? Wasn't that the moment when, when we were going to finally see God at, at great work and do something great? So he runs into the wilderness of Judah, not Samaria, so he's now down south, and God leads him to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And when he gets to Mount Horeb, he comes to a cave and he lodges there because, of course, Jezebel's looking for him. And the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Good question, right? I mean, what what are you doing here? Don't you have the faith that I can protect you from Jezebel? I mean, really? What are you doing out here in the middle of the wilderness? What are you doing out here in the middle of the wilderness down in Judea? Why? And he says, well, uh, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I am left alone, and they seek my life to take it away. That's what I'm doing here. I'm running for my life. So God says to Elijah, and by the way, if you're writing, taking notes, this is First Kings 19. God says to Elijah, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And so, behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord really wasn't in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his cloak around his face and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said again, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets. With the sword and I am left alone and they seek my life. After the great Mount Carmel experience with the fire falling and all of that, it can be very tempting to think that the only time God is really at work is when the fire is falling. Or he's really at work in the earthquakes and he's really at work when, when the wind is blowing so hard that it's actually ripping the rocks right out of the, out of the side of the mountain. That's where God is. Actually, that's not where God is. God is in the quiet, gentle blowing, the, the small voice. And the everyday events of life. Not just in the big events, not just in the massive events, not just in the, the tremendous things, the, wow, look at the power of God. God is powerful every single day. Every day. The fact that you get out of bed this morning, power of God. The fact that you're here. The fact that you are at this moment hearing this passage at this time is the power of God. There's no mistakes. There's no no chance in the Christian's life. We are part of the family of God and God is bringing about to our benefit all things working together for good to those who love God. Not just the big things, not just the major massive things. We are kind of under this illusion that somehow we're in charge of our lives, that our decisions are what really make the difference. But uh, the fact is that I mean, we should make good decisions. We should strive to be wise. But, you know, the, the casting of the die, you know, it lands. But the actual carrying out of the matter is of God. And it's always of God. So when we're trying to do even the mundane things, even things that you don't really think that much about, pray. Beg God to use every day to serve him. This is what Jesus, when he leaves Capernaum, where is he going? We don't know. What's he going to do when he gets there? We don't know that either. But we're going with him anyway. We are going to follow Jesus. That's the disciples and the crowd. And you know what? It always paid to follow Jesus. Because when you get to Nan, you suddenly realize that Jesus had a plan. This wasn't just happenstance. This was actually God at work. And the more we've, closely we follow Jesus, the more the work of God we're going to see. It will transform us. And it's not always the flash and the, and the big bang and the fire and the earthquake. Sometimes it's just a still, small voice. Sometimes it's just that quiet faithfulness. That's what God can use, and we should let him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are at work all the time. That you are bringing about circumstances that we don't even foresee. We we don't even in any way perceive that you are at work. But the fact is, all things are working together for good to those who love you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would act like we believe that. May we act like you're working for our benefit. Not just in the good things, but in the challenging things as well. In the trials, in the day-to-day living. You're right there. It's not like you just occasionally turn your eye towards us and look. You are continuously beholding us. And I pray that we would perceive that and live accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.